You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord, and it is given to the church for our good. Thanks, Lammy. Let me pray, and let's, let's turn our attention to reflect a bit on this passage. So bow your heads and pray with me, would you? Let's pray. Our Lord, we come before you now knowing that your word is uh, true and without error and given for our good. And, and indeed, it won't fail at what it sets out to accomplish. And yet we come before you and acknowledge that we are a hard-hearted people who are stubborn. We're prone to misunderstanding your word, prone to interpreting it in ways that are favorable to us. And so we ask now that your Holy Spirit would come upon this room with power, that your word would convict us, your word would open our eyes to see things that we're currently blinded to, that your word would create faith inside of us, and we would find ourselves a people who know more deeply our love in Christ, who know more seriously our rebellion against you and your ways, but also leave here comforted that you are sending your spirit to make for yourself a new people. So please work, Father, in this room whether that feel mystical or extremely ordinary work, powerfully we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, it's family day weekend, and you, like me, obviously didn't get a chance to get away to places with warm sun. So as we sometimes do, maybe for an introduction, I want you to imagine that you're now in Tunisia. You're in the city of Carthage. Probably not the vacation you're looking for, though. It's the second century, and Christianity has only made its way kind of into North Africa for, for a little uh, over a hundred years it's been around, but it's moved from minority religion to something of a prominent position because of a series of martyrs, especially per- Perpetua and Felicity, two noble women of high ranking in society. Their willingness to be martyred for the Christian faith has caused Christianity to grow and have a, a huge influence in the city of Carthage. And there's all kinds of questions uh, rolling around in the city, though, about its relationship to Christianity. And as this city As more and more people accept Christianity in this city, more and more surrounding cities in the Roman Empire begin to question uh, the faithfulness of this city to the Roman way. And during this time, one bishop, his name is Tertullian, Tertullian, he writes a defense of Christianity, especially in the face of the persecution. He writes this, If the Tiber River rises as high as the city walls, if the Nile River does not send its waters up over the fields, if the heavens give no rain, if there is earthquakes, if there is famine or pestilence, straight away the cry is, away with the Christians to the lions. What? Shall you give such multitude to a singular beast? Please, tell me how many calamities befell the world and particular cities before Tiberius reigned and before the coming that of Christ. Fast forward now a couple hundred years. It's the early 5th century 
you're heading just, I believe, just a little bit west to the modern, again, to now you're in a, the, the city of Hippo. And at the time, Christianity now has had great power over the Roman Empire. Not just one city, but all Roman Empire, the cities of all the Roman Empire now have a series of churches in which Christians are gathering and worshiping. People of noble ranking and poor are coming together and worshiping the resurrected Christ. And yet, the world is in crisis, especially for much of the civilized world, because all of a sudden, the Roman Empire is caving and crumbling. There's invaders that have come into the empire, and the Roman civilization is not what it once was. And old questions begin flaring up again, and people begin to assume this must be because of the Christians. We've turned away from the traditional Roman gods. And the reason the empire is falling apart is because of such influence of Christianity. And at the time, one author, his name is Augustine of Hippo, sets out to write a defense of Christianity in the face of the fall of Rome. He writes a book called The City of God, worth your time. And he writes this, How shameless our adversities are, how rash, how foolish, or rather how insane, when they do not impute those earlier misfortunes to their own God, and yet now attribute the most recent ones only to our Christ. A thousand years later, uh, the Reformation's underway, and the printing press has greatly changed society. You know the stories as they go in Western Civ. Uh, ideas are spreading rapidly. And in France, a group of clergy and theologians and Christians are calling into question the practices of the late medieval church. And France, uh, King uh, Francis I, King of France, uh, begins to see this problem brewing his church. Initially, he accepted these clash of ideas in his kingdom. But he begins to see the church and these challenges to the church's teaching to be an affront to his kingdom. And he starts imprisoning Christians and imprisoning pastors. And in fact, he makes a big show of it. He begins hanging pastors in public settings for everyone to see. And makes very clear that there will be no uh, dissenting from the church. Not only does he begin hanging pastors and leaders of churches, he also burns them publicly at the stake to send a very clear message all over his kingdom. And around this time, one man named John Calvin flees France, and he eventually finds safety in Switzerland as a refugee. And he sets out to write a theological treatise, a book that's still read by almost everyone in seminary today, at least in small parts, read by almost everyone in seminary today. It's called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's a huge book. But in the beginning of that book, he writes an introduction which he pleads with King Francis I of France. He pleads about the injustice of the persecutions that have come upon the Christians, how it's unfair to continue to blame all the troubles of the kingdom upon the Christians, especially as the Christians are learning now to be faithful to God's word afresh. And Calvin writes this, How great is the malice that would ascribe to the very word of God itself the odium either of sedition, which wicked and rebellious men stir up against it. Yet this is no new example. Elijah was asked if it was not he who troubled Israel. To the Jews, Christ was seditious. The charge of stirring up the people was laid against the apostles. What else are they doing who blame us today for all the disturbances, tumults, and contentions that boil up against us? Elijah taught us what we ought to reply in such charges. It is not we who either spread errors abroad or incite tumults, but it is they who contend against God's power. Now, it's February 19th, not 2023, though. It's actually February 19th, 2018. And the town of Depache in um, Nigeria, you may remember the story, 110 schoolgirls aged 11 to 19, kidnapped by Boko Haram. They were at the Girls' Science and Technology College that the government, uh, with some of the leading 
uh, sort of students in, in the country, at least in the north and eastern part of the country. And less than a month after their captivity, somehow the Nigerian government negotiates their release, probably with a huge ransom paid to Boko Haram. And all the living uh, captives are released, except for one girl. Her name is Leah Sherbiru. She uh, was 14 at the time of her capture. And they begin searching for her and searching for her and going back and forth with Boko Haram saying, we negotiated their release. Where is this girl, Leah? Where is Leah? Her parents begin pleading for her. And we, be and we find out eventually, as you may remember on the news, as you may have heard since this day, she wasn't released because she refused to convert to Islam. She wouldn't even give lip service. She refused to deny her Christ. Her father was a prominent man in the city. He was the head of the police force in the town in which they lived. And he was asked how he is responding to the fact that his daughter is still not released. Actually, still not released to this day. And, and her father replied this way to all media who would listen. To be straightforward, I'm feeling fantastic because she did not deny her Christ, her Savior. As terrible as this is, this makes me feel great. This is to say nothing of the persecution that has come upon people in our city, immigrants even in our church, who convert to Christianity and have siblings that refuse to talk to them for weeks, months, even years. This is to say nothing of the persecution that comes upon Christians in various practices, especially the medical practice right now, as the Christian community refers to participate in certain medical procedures. This is to say nothing of the persecution that comes upon Christians today who won't put a certain flag on their desk, and this brings trials their way, won't celebrate certain things the world demands they celebrate. To say nothing of the Christians in our church who work as servers and decide that they want to account for their tips and pay proper taxes on it, and the persecution they receive from their workplace for standing this way. Listen, if you say Christ is your king, you're going to suffer. The Bible's blunt about it. All those who aspire to live godly lives will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3, 12. It's been the witness of the church, no matter where you look, wherever there are Christians, there will be tastes of persecution, sometimes small in societies where Christianity has made a, a big impact, but sometimes great. 14-year-old girls who won't, uh, won't bow the knee, who refuse to deny her allegiance to Christ. And maybe what's so perplexing about this passage we're looking at is not that suffering will come. I think that that's something everyone understands. And as a general principle, people suffer because they're different. Uh, you know, all around the world, Christians aren't the only people who are suffering. Other religions are suffering. But Jesus says here that this suffering is something that we need to count as a blessing. Something we should delight in, rejoice in. That's what he says in this particular passage. Uh, does not every human experience that you have tell you one thing? That the better one is, the less trouble will come upon a person. And yet what Jesus is saying here is the more that one is, uh, has allegiance to this new kingdom, this new administration that he's rolling into this world, the more you will find yourself confronted with suffering. We've been looking at these beatitudes, these blessings. Jesus is saying, look, I'm rolling out a new administration. My kingdom, the agenda of my kingdom is rolling out. And what it means to be a people blessed in my kingdom, to, to have, who have privilege in my kingdom, to know they're living the good life in my kingdom. We looked two weeks ago. They're people who know that they're lacking something. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're poor in spirit, you know. Then last week, we, Jesus said, look, the people who in my kingdom have privilege, have status, know that they're blessed. They're the ones who look out. They're merciful, pure in heart. 
These are the people who, who have blessing in my kingdom. And now, as we get to the end, it's almost as though Jesus is saying, do you want to know who's truly blessed in my kingdom? As it rolls out into this world, in a world filled with conflict, in a world that is going to ultimately reject Jesus as their king, do you want to know who is blessed in my kingdom? Those who I've described as peacemakers, those people will ultimately be persecuted. And when they are persecuted, they will be blessed. They will have privileged positions. This last beatitude is the longest of Jesus, and you'll see as he first gives the principle, he then actually looks right at his disciples in the eyes in some senses and says, you, you know, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. We know persecution's coming. We know we will experience it. In the Western world, it's been relatively mild up to this point. But how in the world are we going to be the type of people who believe it to be a blessing? Well, this morning, I want to look at two things. I want to look at the reason this persecution comes and then the response to this per- persecution we ought to have if we're going to be those who are blessed. So the reason the persecution comes and the response, okay? So first, let's look at the reason why this persecution will come. What does Jesus say? In verse 10 and verse 11, he gives us the reason persecution is inevitably going to come. Persecuted for righteousness' sake in verse 10, and in verse 11, he he even goes deeper. Persecuted, uh, they will persecute you on my account. Now, Jesus makes clear that there is a blessing for the persecution that is going to come, But not all persecution gets that blessing, okay? There's Christians, especially Christians in the West, who don't experience as much persecution as others, who are persecuted because they are simply a nuisance, (laughs) because they're annoying, you know, because they're stubborn and difficult to get along with and objectionable. There is a type of persecution that comes because of that, but Jesus isn't saying that's the type of persecution that brings a blessing. There's also suffering and persecution that comes because of our sin. You know, if you, if you make a habit of lying to people, people will find you to be untrustworthy and you'll have a certain measure of suffering that comes upon you. If you've, if you've made all your business practices based around your ability to lie and then people refuse to do business with you, you can't walk around saying, well, I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm blessed in the kingdom. You know, here I am suffering. They don't do business with me because I'm a Christian. No, they don't do business with you because you're a liar. There's consequences to your particular action. There's no blessing for that. There's also no blessing for just being foolish, for, uh, just for, for making bad investments. This isn't the blessing that Jesus talks about. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted on my account, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rather than being a, a cursed state to be in that you should seek to get out, this is actually a blessed state to be in. Now, I want to slow down. And ask, what type of sufferings receive this blessed state? Where, where do we know? How do we know we're get, getting this blessing? And Jesus does make clear there's, t- there's two ways. We're suffering for righteousness' sake, and we're suffering on account of Christ. So the question becomes, com- becomes somewhat complicated. You know, who qualifies for this blessing? You know, when do we know it's on righteousness' sake? Gandhi, did he suffer for righteousness' sake? Well, I think Jesus is using the second question. Uh, description to clarify the first. And he's saying, your suffering that results in blessing, the persecution that will come, is on account of Jesus. Maybe to say it this way, the root of your suffering is Jesus. This is the point that he's trying to make. The reason you will be insulted, you will be aggressively pursued, the reason you'll be slandered is not actually anything to do with your behavior. 
It's 100% to do with the fact that your life is wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus will be the root provocateur of all persecution that comes upon Christians. Jesus promises at the end of this gospel, I will be with you to the end of the ages. His presence will reside amongst the Christian community. And ultimately, ultimately what brings about the persecution is not the things that you do. Those are the occasions with which you receive persecution. But ultimately, the persecution comes because your life is tied up with Christ. Because Christ is present with you, you will be persecuted. This is the point I think Jesus is making. Maybe I'll illustrate it this way to make the case. Uh, I had a friend in high school, and I shouldn't say his name. The internet's a powerful tool, and I'm always surprised who listens. Um, sometimes, very surprised. Um, but I had a friend in high school. I won't say his name. He was funny. He was athletic, he was popular, he was beautiful, you know, he was attractive. He walked by the girls and they all couldn't help but watch as he walks past. He had a certain swagger to him, a certain smile. He, was a, he, he had one thing uh, that he had against him, though, and that was that for whatever reason, he always had a standing invitation to the principal's office, right? I mean, he was always in trouble, always in trouble. Principal, uh, the teachers couldn't stand him. He was constantly up to something. He was constantly being difficult. But, you know, he had this way of doing it as the cool kid. And I wanted to be liked by him. I wanted to be around him. I wanted him to like me. And you know, something happened. I remember actually even talking to my dad about it. I believe, unfortunately, it was when the cops called my father to talk about what we had done. Um, I remember saying, you know, Dad, I was, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. You know, whenever I happen to be around him, though, it's like we don't get the benefit of the doubt. And whenever I happened to be around him, it was like he was a magnet. Like, people would come and start trouble around him, and then he would, you know, it's like these fights just came to us, you know? <laughs> Uh, I don't know what happened. And I remember realizing that the reason I never got in the, the benefit of the doubt, and no matter <clears throat> how much I promised my dad I would be on my best behavior around this guy, that I wouldn't do anything wrong, that I wouldn't start any trouble, it didn't matter. When I was around this guy, trouble came to us. Why? Because his character, because his reputation, because the history teachers had with him and others had with him, they overshadowed any of my individual actions or efforts or any of my ways to sort of stay out of trouble. What's my point? What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say this is if you can understand this principle, especially, and kids, you don't understand, you know, if you're in junior high, high school, I, I promise you, you're going to believe me one day. If you can understand this principle that just by virtue of being in association with someone who's trouble, more trouble will come onto your life, then you can understand something of this principle that Jesus is saying. No matter how much I tried to be a good kid who happened to be friends with this guy, being friends with this guy overshadowed any of my personal you know, virtuous efforts. So the reason I share this is because when I was around uh, this friend, all kinds of suspicion, all kinds of anger and frustration sort of came upon me by virtue of being near him. And so also Jesus is saying this, it doesn't matter how you conduct yourself, no matter how savvy you are at the workplace navigating certain cultural ethical issues, you know, no matter uh, how impure even your loyalty to Christ is, it's not actually about your behaviors that this persecution will come upon you. This persecution is going to come upon you because Christ is in you. Christ is with you. His presence is with you. Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters for a variety of reasons, but maybe I'll say it this way. The first is, I could find a series of sermons, and in fact, I could preach one now, where I could heap up a, just a pile of guilt upon you as Western Christians saying, why are you not being persecuted? Clearly, you're not loyal enough to Christ. And you know what's going to end up happening? Based on motivated by fear and shame and guilt, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go look for ways to be a pain in the neck Monday. 
You're going to be looking to pick a fight so that you might feel like you're persecuted with Christ, so that you can deal with insecurities of, of feeling as though, uh, you know, maybe for sure I am one of, of the good ones so that because I'm being persecuted. Your outlook is going to be on your behavior and the ways in which you can evoke this persecution. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying this persecution comes on account of me. He's very careful with these words. The persecution comes on account of me. And so if you're wondering, why am I not persecuted? The question isn't to do an audit of your life, although this is worthwhile, and to see areas in which you've been a coward to the Christian faith, though this is worthwhile. You are indeed a coward to the Christian faith, I assure you. But the persecution comes not because of the purity of your obedience. It doesn't come because of the perfection with which you follow Christ. It, becomes, it comes on you because of Christ. It comes on weak Christians and strong Christians because Christ is with them. The focus then has to not so much be on how do I evoke persecution, you know, or how do I, uh, you know, go on Facebook and make sure I pick the right fights. No. The focus becomes how do I dwell more with Christ? How do I draw nearer to Christ so that the Christ in me becomes, it permeates my pores, it spills out of me to a greater degree so that I exude with Christ and then you will be persecuted on account. You will be slandered, you'll be maligned, you'll be mistreated. The way to fix this is to draw near to Christ. This is the point I've been trying to say. Maybe I'll also add, add a couple of thoughts to this. In Acts 2, verse 27, we find that the early church actually grew in favor with all people. They were well thought of by all people. We also know that a qualification to be an elder is to be well thought of by outsiders. Now, I'm trying to be very careful. I know we're coming out of a politically loaded time as it relates to COVID. But I hope we've, we're far enough away to know there were certain people who picked absurd fights and felt very, very strong in their faith because they thought they were being persecuted. There were. There are other people who are cowards, who didn't stand up for Christ, I assure you. But the obsession over our particular actions, we do need to talk about these things, we do need to weigh out how we should have taken our stand or where we should have taken our stand or when we shouldn't have taken our stand or things we shouldn't have said. But at the end of the day, this persecution comes on account of Christ. There's no perfect obedience that could avoid it. And there's this tension that will constantly erupt, being well thought of by outsiders and at the same time being persecuted on, a, on account of Christ. It's not that you're just a, a purely abrasive person. The persecution comes on account of Christ. I hope I've made my point. The more you draw near to Christ, the more you know Christ, the more you're close with Christ, the more no matter how much you grow in favor with the world, you will also experience persecution. If right now you're experiencing no persecution and you're wondering what you're doing wrong and you're reflecting on a couple of HR meetings where you wonder if you should have spoke up or a couple of friendship networks where they mocked Christianity, it's worth thinking of those things. It really is. And it's worth asking yourself, what does allegiance to Christ look like? Sure, you should ask that. But your goal isn't to bring persecution upon yourself. Your goal is to be nearer to Christ and Christ is the magnet with which persecution comes. I belabored my point. I hope you get it. Let's ask now how we're to respond to this persecution. How should we respond? And Jesus gives us very great clarity in verse 12. And maybe one way we could think about it is Jesus says, when we're persecuted, we need to look forward and we need to look backwards. Now, what do I mean by this? Look forward and look backwards. Well, first, look forward. Jesus says we're to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because though we are going through presently terrible and horrific experiences of persecution. Jesus is not saying these things will be fun. We should rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. Now listen, Matthew's going to talk about rewards a lot, especially in chapter 6, so I don't want to say everything that could be said about rewards here. But Jesus will say 
that there will be compensation for the disadvantages you experience on this world when his kingdom administration rolls in. He will, uh, let me just remind you that Jesus has announced that his kingdom is coming and breaking into this world in him. And this kingdom of heaven is coming in, coming into this world. And he's promising that one day it's going to come just like a conquering king. One day it will, it will be here and there will be no one who can take exception to it. But for whatever reason, in Jesus' wisdom, he's announcing this kingdom and birthing this kingdom. And he's declaring a period of amnesty with which the gospel can go forth, the good news of Jesus can go forth, the forgiveness can be found, Christ can be called your king. And as you receive Jesus Christ in your heart, as you trust and believe in Jesus Christ, the kingdom in some senses is birthed inside of you, in, in a sense, uh, as, as you come to and submit to Christ uh, before it's too late. And so there's this period of amnesty. He's announcing that the kingdom's coming and the fullness will come at the end of history. And right now we're living into this, this period of, of amnesty. That's why we're proclaiming the gospel every week and telling people to turn from their sins and trust in Christ before it's too late. Now Jesus is saying that on that last day, when the fullness of his kingdom administration comes in, when everything wrong is made right, when everything gets fixed and justice flourishes on this earth, there will be a fair accounting there will be a fair re reconciliation. You will receive a reward for that which is lost, and you won't worry about it. You know, maybe I could illustrate it this way. You, you can, Jesus is saying you can think of yourself similar to the man who uh, you know, has his car. Maybe this doesn't happen as much in Toronto, but you know, when your car, when your engine no longer works, and you see in the news there's a hailstorm coming, you know, instead of putting the car in the garage, you, you basically make sure it's not under a tree. Make sure you know, it's a magnet for hail. Why? Because you know the insurance is going to compensate you far more than the car is worth. Because whatever's wrong with it, it's not working right now. But once you get the payout from the hail, this would be better than, than, than you could have ever dreamed. Jesus is saying something like that. Yes, you're going to receive persecution in this life. But the compensation is going to be greater than the worth of the car. I don't think anyone got that. But it was a brilliant, brilliant illustration. Very few insurance fraud people in this church, I guess. Um, praise be to God. <laughs> now pray for your pastor. Um, this is Jesus' point. At the, at the end of the, on the last day, it's going to be, you're not going to feel like that was much of a loss. You're going to say, wow, wow, when the ledger came back, when the spreadsheet came back, minus, you know, minus X plus X plus a multiplier, you know, there'll be something so much greater coming at the, on the last day. And Jesus is saying, this is how you should respond when you're persecuted. You should look forward and know that the fullness of the kingdom is coming one day and there will be a proper accounting. And it will, it, will, it will be an experience that you will not regret or you will not, be, you will not be sad that you missed out on something. In fact, the persecution you receive is something when you inherit the reward for it, you are going to be thankful for what you experience. Now, this isn't saying you go around like some sort of sadist just looking for persecution and just enjoying pain. You can, it's a full invitation to enjoy life. But what Jesus is saying is on that last day when these things are accounted for, things uh, will be made right and there will, you will not... You will not be buried in regret and shame. Look forward to that day. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you look forward to that day as you're in the face of suffering, and when you see glimpses of that day, you find yourself rejoicing, like my insurance fraud man, rejoicing at the hailstorms coming down on his car because he knows something better is around the corner. But it's not just that you look forward, you also look back. Because what do we read in verse 12? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Look forward. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look back. Jesus is saying, look back. You're in good company. All the heroes of your faith, they also were persecuted. 
You know, the Jewish people are in this perplexing, hearing this would have been in this perplexing situation where they would say, ours is the kingdom with which we receive the prophets. The very word of God came and spoke to us. We were treated and privileged with having God's prophet, and yet God's prophets, and yet which of the prophets did they not persecute? Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Amos, on and on we could go. Not only did God's people receive these messengers from God, but they also repeatedly mocked and even persecuted these messengers from God. And Jesus is saying, if the kingdom of heaven is breaking in in Jesus, if it is starting to be unveiled now, and in him now we're hearing God's words more clearly than ever through Jesus into our world, well, my goodness, if your allegiance to this Jesus evokes persecution, then you are in good company. The way they are treating you is the same way they treated the faithful in days of old. Look back to the life of those saints, the biographies of those who came before, who experienced persecution, and know you are on the right track. Listen, we all know that there's a certain type of pain um, that is worth it, maybe to say it that way. And we all know that it is legitimate pain as much as we tell ourselves it's not pain. You know, there's, there's cancer treatments that we know are going to make life absolutely miserable for a season. We know that that pain is worth it for the result of being cancer-free. You know, you go to the gym and you see these, you know, these absolute idiots delighting in the pain of tearing down their muscle fiber. Why? Because the reward is worth it. The reward is absolutely worth it. And this is sort of what Jesus is saying. That when suffering comes, we have to see this pain as real and true, but rejoice because something greater is just around the corner. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. I don't know if anyone knows the name Barry Marshall in here. Um, I didn't know of him much at all. He was an Australian doctor. And in 1984, uh, he had this, this very historic moment. A friend of his who was also a doctor handed him a cup that was filled with of, of bacteria that had been cultivated on a Petri dish mixed with sort of warm beef uh, extract. And Barry Marshall, though he was a doctor with great pedigree, chose to drink this cocktail, and he drank it with joy. And much to no one's surprise, three days later, you don't need a medical degree to guess, he started feeling nauseous. He started feeling extremely nauseous, and then before long, he found himself constantly vomiting. You see, the prevailing theory around the 1980s was that if you had an ulcer, it was almost assuredly from stress. And at the time, uh, the patients that were coming to the doctor's office with ulcers were often treated with tranquilizers or antidepressants, at least according to what I've read. If you're a doctor here and I'm wrong, forgive me, but hang in there for the sake of the illustration. Stick with the insurance fraud one. It was pretty good, too. Uh, <laughs> but what Barry Marshall uh, began to be convinced of is that ulcers were actually, there was a chance they were coming from a type of bacteria as well. And no one took him seriously, actually. And he couldn't get funding for any of his uh, trials. He couldn't find any humans that wanted to enroll in his trials. And out of pure frustration, but an absolute confidence that his theory was correct, a, a robust, confident faith that his theory was correct, he did this experiment on himself. He took the, the, the bacteria inside of himself and experienced the pain and suffering of an ulcer. But why did he do it? He did it to, to prove something. And as the pain came, though the pain was terrible, though I'm sure there was no joy in the pain, he knew he was on the right track. He knew his theory was right. As he experienced the pain, he thought, my goodness, there must be something going on. It must be happening. Look, if Jesus' kingdom is breaking in, 
And if our world is, is set against God's ways, constantly in conflict with God, constantly at war with God's ways, even if we do it politely and subtly in Canada, we still find ourselves rejecting the ways in which God has told us we will flourish. If we accept and trust in Christ and these things come inside of us, then in a real sense we should expect that the pain of this war that goes on between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, we should start, we should start to feel it bubble up like this ulcer. It will come, this pain. But it's worth it because it proves the theory true. You see, Barry Marshall also knew, though, not just that his theory was indeed true, that he was on the right track. He also knew that his suffering then could be alleviated because if this was caused by bacteria, then a quick course of antibiotics would allow the bacteria, would kill the bacteria and begin to heal the ulcer. And if the bacteria caused the ulcer, the antibiotics would wipe out the ulcer and his suffering would ultimately fade away. In 2015, or 2005, actually, he wins the Nobel Prize for this. This is what Jesus is trying to say, and I hope I've made my point. It's family day, I'm a bit rusty too. Um, you know, I hope, I hope you understand my point. What Jesus is saying is this, look back. The people who were closest to our Lord in times of old, the people whose words we read, they experience persecution. And if Jesus' call to follow this kingdom of heaven is true, if it starts to birth inside of us like new life, like being born again, then we should expect that some pain will come out of that as we live in this old world. And yet, in the same way we're experiencing this pain and it's a confirmation that we're on the right track, we also should look ahead and say, but if we are on the right track, if this pain is the correct pain, well, we know the remedy. Not, of course, the antibiotics, but we know a day is coming when the Lord will set all things to right. And when that day comes, this will look like a blink of an eye, all the persecution and suffering we experienced. Friends, listen, I know some of you are suffering right now. I do. I feel like as a pastor in Toronto, I'm shocked, but it's almost once a week that I hear of a, a new case of suffering. It's not as serious as the 14-year-old girl, Leah, that we talked about at the very beginning of this service. It's not as systemic as suffering that has come upon other Christians, but I know there are some of you that are, are deeply being mistreated in your workplace, slandered, reviled, because of your allegiance to Christ. I know these things are taking place. And I promise you, I promise you, that this means you are dwelling with Christ. This means Christ is pouring out through your very pores. And it's ultimately Christ that they're against, and his kingdom that they're against. And some of what has happened to you is just simply the occasion for them to express the disdain they have for Christ and this kingdom that is rolling in. You're on the right track. And I assure you, with the blink of the eye, Christ's kingdom will come in fullness and all will be made well. Let me conclude this way. There's an interesting pattern to the Beatitudes, and I don't know if you saw it, if you're listening closely the past two weeks. The first four of the Beatitudes, Jesus is emphasizing that those who are blessed in his kingdom are those who lack things. They find themselves craving things and wanting things. Then the next three of his Beatitudes are almost like, after these people understand that they lack things, they're filled up by the Lord, they're poor in the Spirit, they find themselves being made rich in, in, in God. The next three Beatitudes are almost as though those people who are now rich, who've been, who, are, who are low and are lifted up, are sent out to go love the world, to be peacemakers, to be merciful, to live as those with pure hearts. And then we get to this final and climactic beatitude and what happens. Those who've been lifted up, who find themselves serving this world by this world, are knocked down again. And we see Jesus telling us something of this cycle of the Christian life that we should expect. Those who are low 
acknowledging their lowliness, being lifted up by the Lord, being made agents and servants of his kingdom, being knocked low again by persecution so they can be lifted up again over and over and over again. And this shouldn't surprise us. For this is the very pattern of the life of Christ being birthed inside of us and being worked out inside of us. This routine is making us more and more like Christ. For he had all the glories of heaven. He couldn't have been higher. And yet out of love, pure love for you, for me, he came to this very earth, lived a very humble life, died a wretched death as a martyr. But he did this for you. He did this for me. He did this that sins might be atoned for, that he might conquer any debts being held out against you, redeemed you from the cost of your slavery. And how did our Lord act upon seeing his son in this grave? Did he not resurrect him and lift him up to greater glory, to, into the heavens? Friends, between now and until the Lord returns, this is going to be the pattern. The lowly will be lifted up. They'll be sent out to serve. They'll be knocked down flat, and they'll come back in Sunday morning, and they'll hear the whole liturgy of it over and over and over and over again until Christ is birthed in us. This is the hope and the good news of the gospel. There will be persecution. By God's grace, it's been fairly mild in our particular corner of his earth. There will be persecution, though. I assure you, they persecuted the prophets before you. They will, they will persecute you as well. But find yourself rejoicing, for the kingdom of heaven is working its way into your life, my life, and into our world to make us into the people, God's people, fit for that kingdom that is to come. Let me pray. Our Lord, we thank you that though there is for sure persecution to be experienced in this world, and though, uh, Father, some of this persecution is unbearable and it feels almost senseless, we lift up to you those caught in slavery like Leah. We thank you that you are turning the most wicked plays of Satan into causes with which we can rejoice. That you're taking all that Satan meant for evil and you're using it for good. And in your kingdom, in your kingdom, there will not be a cry of injustice. You will, be, you will be deemed the glorious and fair and good God. And so we thank you, Father, for Christ, who came to us and experienced persecution, but in his persecution purchased a salvation for us. We ask now, Father, that you would use us, even if that involves being so associated with you that we experience persecution. And in using us, you spread your kingdom over the city. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.